Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Hey church, it is my privilege to introduce to you the first of two tag preachers taking place today and next Sunday. We have three guys today, Phil Hainsworth, Andy Coleman and Keegan Z.A.D. who'll be preaching from Psalm 130. Next week, it'll be three other guys preaching from Psalm 131. You might want to just open your Bible to Psalm 130 right now. I'm going to read it shortly. Why do we do these tag preachers? Well, our mission as a church has three parts to it. One of those is to train leaders. We believe it's key to seeing our vision of hundreds of lives transformed and tens of congregations started is to train leaders. And one of those areas is to train people up to be outstanding expositors and preachers of the word of God. I've had the privilege already to watch these messages. I think they've done a super job. Please shower them with great encouragement to help them. That will help them to grow and to be a blessing to you and to our whole church family. Let me read Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord God, we thank you for your forgiveness that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for how we can see this in your word. Thank you for your inerrant infallible, inspired word. Come by your Holy Spirit now and make it alive to our hearts that we might adore and worship you all the more for the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Phil. I'm part of the Chapel family. And to start us off, I wanted to draw your attention to a pattern that exists through the Bible of God's people crying out to God. So right at the beginning in Genesis, we have Abraham who says to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. A little bit later on, we have God's people when they're in captivity to the Egyptians. Listen what it says in Exodus 2. It says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. A little bit later on in the story of God's people in Exodus, we have Moses. They're in the desert and Moses cries out to God. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. 
And God says to him, I will do the very thing that you asked. This uh, pattern continues. So think uh, a bit further forward with Samuel the prophet and his mum, Hannah. And Hannah can't have children. And she cries out to God to the extent where Eli, who is the high priest at the time, sees her crying out and says, she must be drunk. What's wrong with her? Listen to what she says. Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Think about the Apostle Paul in, uh, in, in, one, in 2 Corinthians, sorry. We read that he cries out to God and he says three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take, uh, to take this thorn from his flesh away from him. We don't know what it is. Some great trouble in his life. Listen to what God says. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And think about our Lord on the cross, crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question I want to ask you this morning as we land in this psalm, Psalm 130, is have we learned to cry out to God out of the depths of our despair? Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. Lord, hear my voice. That's how our psalm, that's how our psalm begins. You see, some of you this morning are in trouble. Some of you are in distress. Some of you are uh, seeing uh, situations in your life and in your family's life and people's lives around you. Uh, and, and you're in trouble. And the invitation this morning is, will you honour the Lord? Will you honour his goodness by beginning to cry out to him? I sometimes wonder what will it take for us to learn to cry out to God? Uh, just in uh, September 2016, uh, I went into hospital to have uh, my appendix removed for expected appendicitis. Um, and a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from, from the nurse and she sounded worried. And you know, you know it's not great news when the nurse sounds worried when they ring you. And they said, look, we've, we've found cancer inside your appendix. You're going to need further surgery. You're going to need treatment. And in that moment, everything, it's like the, the rug got pulled from underneath my feet. And I realised that I'm in trouble. This is crazy. God, if you're not real, I'm in trouble. But if you are real, this is okay. And I started to cry out to him. And I learned something in that season of my life that I'll never let go of. And that is that we can cry out to God and that he hears. And he has given me so much and so the invitation is there for all of us. Will we start to cry out to him? You see, we need to see that our weakness and our frailty is not the thing getting in the way of God moving in our lives, but actually it is the very thing, it's the very opportunity for God to, to move. Just like God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Some of us think we're too weak. But actually, usually, we're actually not weak enough. Uh, Hudson Taylor once said, there is no pressure that is too great unless it gets between us and the Lord. 
Let us allow every pressure to push us into the Lord, that we might cry out to him in our distress, just like this psalm says this morning. But then there are others of you who are crying out. You've learned you need to cry out, and you're crying out about your life, about the situations, about people around you. Uh, You know you're in trouble. You know you can't rescue yourself. You know only the Lord can rescue you, and you're crying out. But your distress is added to because you wonder as you cry out, does he hear me? Can he hear my cryings out? There's two things I want us to see uh, from this psalm this morning to speak to, to those of you who relate to that feeling. So what does our psalm says? Oh, the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So the first thing I want us to see is that God does hear our voice. What difference would it make to our crying out and to our prayers if we could see that he hears? There's so many beautiful examples I could give you, but I'll just give you a few. So listen to this, Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 120, which is another one of these songs of ascents or pilgrim songs that they used to sing on their way to festivals. Um, the, the R psalm also sits in this little family of psalms. Psalm 120 says, I called on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. What difference would it make as we cried out to him if we knew that he hears us? He hears you. He hears you. The other thing, he sees our tears. Psalm 126, another of the pilgrim songs. Listen to this. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Psalm 58, you have kept count of my wandering. You have put your tears in my bottle. Every single tear as we cry out to God, God collects in his bottle. Let that encourage us this morning, for those of you crying out, that he hears you and that he sees your tears and he collects each one of them. What we see in this Psalm 130 is that this primarily, though, is a cry for mercy. You see, more than any other situation in our life or in others' lives around us, the deepest place of despair for the human soul The the deepest depths are when we see ourselves without Jesus before a holy, beautiful, perfect, lovely, majestic God and see that we are utterly lost in our rebellion. That is the depth of despair that this psalm is talking about. That is the place in which, that is the heart of this psalm that is crying out to God and is saying, If you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? But, and this is the thing, but with the Lord there is forgiveness. And that's the beautiful, amazing thing, that with God there is forgiveness. So what about you? Have you ever in your life come to that place of despair? Have you seen your need, that you're tired of trying to save yourself, tired of empty religion? And that you just want to get on your knees and just cry out to him, Father, have mercy upon me. And he hears you and he will hear you.
because like we read later on in the psalm, he himself will redeem Israel from their sins. There's this prophetic verse, just a few verses later on, that points to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who's going to rescue us and save us. I'm going to hand over to uh, Andy, but I just want to leave you with this thought. What are you crying out to God for? What is he asking you to cry out to God for? Don't wait to try and fix yourself. Don't try and drag yourself out of your despair um, by your own strength. See your weakness as an opportunity. See how God wants to deliver you from the depths of your despair and start to cry out to him wherever you are this morning. Good morning. I uh, hope you're all well. Uh, in the time I have today, I'll be speaking on verses four to five. Uh, so let me just read that again for us. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So waiting. I wonder what feelings that word uh, kind of stirs up in you. If you're anything like me, it can stir up feelings of frustration, of, uh, of impatience, of waste. You know, why can't I just get on with things? Uh, I've got things to do. I haven't got time to waste uh, on waiting. Um, just let me get at it now. I don't know if you're anything like me. We live in a go, go, go 24-7 culture. A culture of instant gratification where we want everything now. And if we don't get everything now, we just get so frustrated. You know, take your phone. Um, you know, if you, you know, with a few clicks of your phone, uh, you can get access to, to billions and billions of pieces of information um, almost instantly. Uh, you want a new book? You know, you don't need to go down to the library to get that. You don't need to wait to go to the shop. You know, with a few clicks uh, on your computer, you can get that on any device you want. You know, what, waiting for, for the next episode of your favourite TV show? You know, God forbid we have to wait a whole week for that. Uh, instead, you know, let's just binge the whole thing in a, in a day. You know, we are in this kind of a, a no no waiting culture. Let me ask you this question: How do you feel when your internet works a little bit more slowly than usual? I don't know about you, but for me, it's I find it incredibly annoying, very frustrating. You know, it's it's almost like you know I get this feeling in my body where I'm just um, you know, tense and and wanting just to get on with things. You know, I'm having to wait for a few seconds to type whatever it is that I need to type next. Um, yeah, it's just the culture we live in. Uh, I, I could keep going on, but I hope you see the point. We just don't know how to wait anymore. But in our passage, the psalmist tells us that he waits for the Lord. Now, this word wait appears three times in these two verses. And this phrase, to wait for the Lord, appears many times throughout scripture. So it's clearly, some, clearly something we need to, to pay close attention to. So let's first notice who the psalmist is waiting for. He says he's waiting for the Lord, the subject of his waiting, the one he needs most. Now, there's an expectancy based uh, on who he's waiting for there. Now, I love this quote from Octavius Winslow. He's a, a 19th century uh, evangelical preacher. Uh, and he said this on the idea of waiting for God. In the first place, it is a posture of faith. Here is the gracious soul hanging in faith upon God in Christ Jesus, upon the veracity of God to fulfil his promise, upon the power of God to help him in difficulty, upon the wisdom of God to counsel him in perplexity, upon the love of God to shield him in danger, upon the omniscience of God to guide him with his eye, 
and upon the omnipresence of God to cheer him with his presence and at all times and in all places, his son and his shield. Wow, that is the God that we can wait for. A faithful, powerful, wise, loving, all-knowing, ever-present God, Father, Son and Spirit. So maybe you've been waiting for God to move for some time in your life and, and you're just losing hope. Be reminded of the wonderful, awesome God that you are waiting for. He is faithful. Or maybe you need to be waiting for God. Um, place your trust in him. He is worth waiting for. So how are we to wait for the Lord? What does this even mean? Well, the first aspect of waiting is simply to stop to slow down, to listen, to abide in Jesus, to, to sit at his feet. You think of the story of Mary and Martha. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to what he says. Martha, we're told, is distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. What did Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. You know, we need Jesus. We need time with him. I recently read a metaphor um, that resonated with me. I don't know if it resonates with you. It said, many of us want a drive-through meeting with God. Quick and easy, something that won't take up too much of our time and yet will still get us everything we want. How many of us are like that? I know I certainly am at times. You know, God, I can, I can fit you in for 10 minutes this morning and then, you know, let me see. You know, I have to look in the diary. I don't really have another opening for you for until probably like late next week. I can maybe squeeze you in. I've got a few things I want to talk to you about, a few things I want you to do for me. You know, maybe I'll have some time to worship on Sunday. But, you know, apart from that, really, life is just too busy. Yeah, yeah, I did watch four episodes of that TV show on Saturday. But you understand, don't you, God? No, life is just too busy. Now, there's, there's no condemnation here, you know, no judgment. I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else here. Many of us have lots of legitimate things we need to do. Uh, many responsibilities to be a good parent, uh, a good friend, a good spouse, a good work colleague and so on. But how do we expect to hear from God if we won't give him a chance and just stop and listen? How do we expect to feel his loving presence when we're rushing around and not just taking time to sit at his feet and abide. What might you need to change in your life to make time to sit and just wait for God? So part of this waiting is slowing down, stopping, not trying to do everything on our own strength, um, but having faith that he is what we need most. But what else? Surely we're not just supposed to sit there and do nothing. Well, the answer comes from our passage. It says in his word, I hope. Spurgeon explains this well. He says this, God's word is a true word, but at times it tarries. If ours is a true faith, it will wait for the Lord's time. A word from the Lord is as bread to the soul of the believer, and refreshed thereby, it holds out through the night of sorrow, expecting the dawn of deliverance and delight. Waiting, we study the word, believe the word, hope in the word and live in the word and all because it is his word the word of him who never speaks in vain jehovah's word is a firm ground for a waiting soul to rest upon so how do we wait and what do we do well we spend our time digging into the promises of scripture 
to know him more, to remind ourselves of his character and his goodness. We need to continually refresh our minds of what God says in his word about who he is and who we are in him. So that when trouble comes, and we know it will, we'll be able to place our hope in Christ. So what scriptures are coming to mind for you now? What scriptures do you need to maybe commit to memory? Uh, Maybe have on a card in your pocket to remind you of the God you can wait on in expectation and in faith. How can you build in time uh, in the Bible into your life so that when the time of waiting comes, when you need to trust and rely on God, then you've got that firm foundation to stand on. My final point comes from verse six. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Let's take ourselves back a few thousand years to a time where there are frequent wars uh, over control of land, where kings are leading armies to conquer or defend their cities. And these cities have massive walls uh, all around them, making them easier to defend. And in those walls are watchtowers um, where watchmen stand on guard, taking shifts throughout the day and the night, keeping vigil over the city. Night shifts are particularly difficult. It's dark and it's cold. You can't see much. You're continually kind of straining, um, trying to see into the night, see if anyone's coming to attack. Um, When it's often easiest to attack, when it's hard to see. You're desperately trying to keep yourself awake and alert Uh, knowing it's your responsibility to keep um, safe watch over the city. You count down the hours and the minutes and the seconds until you see the first signs of the sun rising, knowing that your shift is coming to an end uh, and that you'll be relieved shortly. Rejoicing at having made it safely through another night without incident, grateful to be able to go home and rest. Now, this is the picture that the psalmist is is painting for us of what it means to wait for the Lord. Our longing for God should be more than the watchman waiting for the morning, eagerly desiring God, wanting him to come more than anything else. Knowing that when you see him, like the watchman seeing the sunrise, that all is well. The psalmist says twice in this passage that his soul waits for the Lord. This is an intense, earnest desire we're seeing here. Everything about him waits for God. For the watchmen, they knew that morning would always come. You know, even when it seems far off and the night is difficult and it's full of sorrow and pain and confusion and, and heartache. When you're seeking God, asking him, you know, what is he doing in the waiting? Know that the sunlight of the morning will come. It always arrives. God remains true to his word. He never fails. You know, while I was preparing this this sermon, um, I was reading through Isaiah and came across this well-known verse um, that we've heard many, many times before. But I really felt that some people needed to hear this today. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, God is faithful to his word and he will give you the strength and everything you need if you wait on him. If you wait for him, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask and wait for it. So we know that God will come in those in those moments or seasons of waiting. But we also ultimately know that he's going to come again in glory uh, to call home all who wait for him. Christian, take heart in this, that we wait for one who has the ultimate victory. 
who will make all things perfect again and with whom we will abide forever. And non-Christian, hear this invitation. Know this God who wants to be in relationship with you and show you the love that he has for you. So my final question, my final challenge for us today is this. How hungry are you for God? Do you see this eager desire that we've spoken about today in your own heart? Or is it just lukewarm? Do you long for God to come and move? Or are you just living your life, you know, thinking that you're fine on your own? What can you do today to reconnect with God, to rekindle that fire, that thirst for God, so that you would wait for him like watchmen wait for the morning? Know that he is good and he is worth waiting for. Good morning, Chapel. I hope that you are feeling encouraged by what Phil and Andy have shared. And I want to give us this morning two reasons to continue putting our hope in God, even when it is through the tears and even when it is long into the night of waiting. My name is Keegan and I'm married to Hannah. And if I haven't met you, I really look forward to meeting you. And Hannah and I have moved to the UK uh, relatively recently, just on two years now. And we spent the first um, year in Cambridge. I was studying uh, for a year and Han initially took a bit of time off from work and then started looking for a job. And quite early on into that search, an amazing door seemed to be opening for a company that she had been longing to work for. It was a bit of a dream job. And we kind of went through the process or she went through the application process and it got right down to the end and they were about to make her an offer when that got withdrawn. And it left us kind of going like, God, what happened there? And anyway, Han kind of picked herself up and continued the search and the next few days started looking around and those days became weeks and those weeks became months, many months. And it was this long, hard search for a job and it caused us to question and to begin to, to struggle with this thing of, God, do we still trust you? Can we still have hope in who you are? And I want to continue in this theme of sort of addressing people who are feeling as though Maybe the, the weight of sin is on them or there's something that you're struggling with and you're struggling to keep hoping in God. You feel like your strength is waning. And I want to talk to you this morning and really specifically encourage you. This psalm in, in verse 7, the, the psalmist continues speaking to Israel and says, Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. And goes on to give two reasons. It says, For with the Lord... Number one, there is steadfast love. And with him, number two, there is plentiful redemption. And so those are my two points this morning. Spoiler alert. Reason number one, God's love is covenanted. Now that word steadfast love in the Bible is a Hebrew word called chesed. And it's either translated as steadfast love or loving kindness or sometimes mercy. But it's a word that's very tied to the concept of covenant. And it's used throughout the Old Testament to reaffirm and to remind the Israelites of God's love. Now, covenants in the ancient world were quite a big deal. And the idea was this. Basically, if you had another person or another tribe or people group who you wanted to instill some kind of trust with, you would enter into a blood covenant with him. And the deal was that you brought everything you had to that agreement. You brought your possessions, you brought an army if you had it to protect the other person, you brought your riches and your wealth, and you promised in that covenant to continue to seek the good of the other person, to have their back 
to the point of death. And so these things were meant to be irrevocable commitment devices between two people so that they would know that no matter what the circumstances were, they could always rely on the commitment and support and backing of the other party. And God has used this commitment device through the Old Testament and through Scripture into the New Testament to remind us and to show us and to demonstrate His unwavering love for His people. In Isaiah 53 verse 8, there's a scripture which is a prophetic promise of the new covenant which we know would be established in Jesus Christ ultimately. And this is what it says. It says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. And God is saying in this, It is as though creation itself can be turned upside down on its head. Our world can look nothing like we were expecting it to look. And it can cause us to question God. But in that moment, he wants us to know that his love is steadfast. I think part of the reason we need to remind ourselves of this and the reason the psalmist needed to remind the Israelites of this is because love that we experience in this world is fickle and it has limits. And that's not any accusation against anybody. It's a function of the fact that we are human, that we unfortunately have been subject to sin and we don't know how to love as we ought. And so our love is almost always conditional. And the thing is that that begins to affect our relationship with God, whether we like it or not. I mean, how many times have you perhaps maybe you can identify this with or identify with this when, you know, you've know that you've sinned, that you've done something wrong. You begin to feel the sense of shame for coming back to God and you begin to wonder, God, are you still going to accept me? Can I even bring this to you? Like, do I not need to clean up my act first before I come back to you? And we expect that God's love sometimes is going to reach a limit. You know, we can bring the same sin back two times, three times, four times. We can come back to God with the same struggle, maybe four, five, six times, maybe seven times. But at some point, we kind of think that God is going to lose interest. Charles Spurgeon has this great quote on, in commenting on the scripture. He says, with us, there is sin. Let us look out of the self and its poverty to Jehovah and his riches of mercy or steadfast love. And I want to encourage you to remember this next time you're finding yourself in that season or if you're in that season now, that as long as God exists, his commitment to love remains irrevocable. If you have gone and you have put your trust in Jesus and you have been born again and you can consider yourself a true follower of Christ, his love is there. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens to you or your circumstances, that is never going to change because it's not dependent on you or your circumstances. It's dependent on the sure word and commitment and promise that God has made to us. And so God's love has been covenanted to us. And that's reason number one. And the second reason for us to keep putting our hope in God is that his redemption is abundant. His redemption is abundant. Phil 
touched on verses three to four in the psalm where the psalmist basically is saying, oh God, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand before you? In other words, who could survive? Who could stand before you if you're to judge us for our sins? But with you, there is forgiveness. And I find it kind of interesting that the Israelite people would have had an understanding of forgiveness, right? And here's the deal. When God gave Moses the Old Testament, or the, 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 not the Old Testament, but God gave Moses the law, the covenant law, he was, in fact, not just giving them laws to abide by, but he was entering into, an, into a covenant with them. And he had promised that he would make them a great nation. He had promised that he would protect them, that ultimately he would take them into the promised land and drive their enemies out before them. And the quid pro quo for that promise was that they had promised in return to be obedient to God and to uphold his commitments and to keep the, the, the laws which God had given them. And of course, we know that if you read the Old Testament, it's littered with stories of people who failed to uphold God's law. And despite deserving punishment for breaking the agreement, God in his graciousness allowed the Israelite people to find a way out and still to attain forgiveness. And how did it work? Well, through the sacrifices of animals, right? The whole sacrificial system was basically set up so that the people could go and atone for their sin. They could redeem themselves from their sin. They could put an animal in their place who could take the punishment which they deserve for breaking God's law. And they could be forgiven in that sense for their sin. And even they had an understanding of this. And even they would praise and worship God for the, his forgiveness. As Christians, on this kind of in this point in, in history where we find ourselves, we have the benefit of being able to look at what Jesus has done. And in Hebrews 10, it says that the law was a shadow, only a shadow of good things to come instead of the true realities of them. And so this sacrificial system was really a foreshadowing of Christ's work to come on the cross, that he would be the sacrifice once and for all, for all sins, that all of us may go free, that all of us may be completely and totally and utterly forgiven, that we wouldn't need to continue to offer sacrifice because God himself had stepped in and it was no longer an animal taking the punishment, but it was God himself out of his steadfast love, absorbing the pain sending Jesus to die in our place as the perfect sacrifice. And if Israelites understood forgiveness, how much more should we? When I was preparing for this, I asked Hannah, you know, what was it that kept you going through this difficult time of months of looking and persistently looking and feeling like nothing was happening? How did you maintain your hope? And the response she gave me was this. She said, time in God's presence. Time in God's presence. And I want to encourage us that as we know that our sins have been completely forgiven, that there's nothing beyond the reach of the sacrifice of Jesus, that we can come to him in complete and utter honesty, bringing all our struggles before him, laying them bare, because he has paid the price for them all. Rolf, Dale Rolf Davis, who's a theology professor in Jackson, says, You seek chesed, covenant love, steadfast love, 
and simply find yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. In confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you. He is the only recourse in uncertainty. And now we know that redemption was you know, something that was for forgiveness of sins, but it's also a redemption that is coming. And we look forward to the future when one day Jesus will return and everything will be restored into perfect unity with God. And we look forward to that day, but more than that, for today, for now, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a foretaste, as a promise, as a deposit or a guarantee of that inheritance and that redemption ultimately, which is going to come one day and which we look forward to. And so I want to pray for us now that all of us, when we lose hope, that we would spend time in his presence, that we would pray that prayer, that ancient prayer that says, come Holy Spirit, God, help me to take my eyes off the poverty of self and to look to you, the one who is steadfast in love. And so, Father, I pray that Holy Spirit right now, as everybody has heard this message this morning, God, that your spirit would help them to know your steadfast love, Lord, that that your spirit would help them to know that they have been completely redeemed, completely forgiven for sins, Jesus, and that they can come to you freely, freely to receive your covenant love. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.